Well, thank you to Gabby and the team leading us this morning. And we're going to turn to the scriptures now. And I do want to invite you this morning again to turn to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. So this morning, Jabu preached at the hill, and uh, the intention of that is that we stay in sequence in weeks to come with the series in Exodus, and then next week he will preach here at Arcadia, and I'll preach at the hill. So we've done, because of the campus outreach, we've done a a crisscross, I think I call it. Exodus chapter 3 this morning, and and from verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Just so far. Uh, God's word to us. Lord, we come again this morning and just to echo those uh, words that we've just been singing, I want to know you more. And Lord, as we consider this passage, as Moses has this encounter with you in these extraordinary circumstances, as he learned, may we also learn, may we also experience, Lord, the greatness and the majesty and the glory of who you are. Praying this, Lord, for the sake of your name. And Lord, praying this morning also that your body would be strengthened in, uh, in this place. Amen. Well, we've already seen and alluded to the fact that God had raised Moses and did so to be his servant in the context where the Hebrews were suffering. They had been suffering for many years. They were oppressed. They were under the hands of the Egyptians, uh, the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And, and, and we read in chapter 2 and verse 24, they were groaning because of their slavery, crying out to God for help. God heard their groaning. So in this record, we see something of how God accomplished that rescue operation. 
We see how God brings about and, and executes his redeeming purposes of saving these people from slavery and, and in this instance using Moses as his instrument and his sermon. It is helpful for us to see, and I'll try to do uh, something of a justice to this last time, that God prepared Moses for the task. He didn't just leave Moses to his own ends. He didn't just throw him in on the deep end. But, but we saw that there was preparation, there was training, and there was nurture. Uh, came, coming in the context of, of, of the home where his parents were able to, to teach him and to nurture him and, and, and to give him something of the context of the nation and the people and the promises of God. And then as he got older, there was further equipping that took place in the palace where he was the adopted son of the princess, the daughter of Pharaoh. But today, Exodus chapter 3 must be one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament uh, that we need to understand, that we need to come to grips with. And what I believe this morning, we're coming to grips or coming to see something of the greatest and most crucial aspect of Moses' preparation in this call to serve God. I've got a frozen iPad. It moved. But before we get to that, I do want to deviate just a little bit this morning in my first point, because I believe there is a message in this period of preparation beforehand, in this period of transition, that we believers ought to hear today. We too are created, as I mentioned last time, as those who uh, are to do good works. Uh, God calls us for a particular purpose, to serve his redemptive purposes. And so as a secondary point this morning, but as an important point this morning, I want to show you that usefulness in great things normally follows faithfulness in small things. I want us to look at Moses and see that. Where, where do we find Moses when we get to Exodus chapter 3? Where has Moses been? And we find the description of his daily work at this particular point in time for a long season of time is that he has been a shepherd. He's going about the hard and I believe tedious slog of, of daily and, and weekly routine looking after sheep. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. What kind of work was Moses busy with? What was he doing? Well, the kind of work was involving, it did involve tough, long hours, not eight hours a day, but 24 hours, seven days a week. It was dirty work. No showers every night or no opportunity to be in a comfortable bed. It was sweaty work. And, and I would imagine, I'm no farmer, I'm a city person, it, it surely must have been boring work. The same sheep, the same countryside, more or less, day in and day out, fairly lonely kind of work. He did that. It's a lifestyle we noticed that started after he had fleed 
for his life and running for his life from Pharaoh and ends up in the land of Midian. Story is that he came across a group of, of shepherds that were intimidating the daughters of a certain man by the name of Reuel. Chapter 2 and verse 7, Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And as a result of that, this man real invited him, invited Moses to be part of the family. Gives him his daughter by the name of Zipporah and they have a son. But now here's my point. And it's a short point this morning, but it's an important point. Christians are not to opt out of the responsibilities of everyday life. You and I ought to be hard at work, always diligent, always faithful, even in the small, mundane, everyday things of life, always being a good example, living a life worthy of the Lord. And I raise this in this context because I see in this passage, in, in the unfolding of this book, that, that the faithfulness that Moses displayed in those mundane, ordinary uh, day things of being a shepherd then develops to become usefulness in bigger things, in greater things. And there's a principle, I've seen it uh, in my own life, in, in the church over the years, that, that individual men and women who are faithful in small things often lead to greater things. So we ought always to get on with whatever our hands can find to do. We don't start at the top. But there isn't really the top in the church. We don't start with those things that, 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 that gather the most attention. But we start being willing to do that which is ordinary. And so, if it is your desire not to waste your life, to be used of God, to accomplish great things, if you would so choose, I would really urge you this morning, and it's a challenge to me as well, let us be happy about going about being busy, being faithful in the small and the ordinary things of life. And I say that now as I move on to my second point, because it was in the midst of faithfulness in the small things, in being a shepherd, that the greatest and most crucial aspect of Moses' preparation takes place. He's a shepherd. He's, he's just moving his sheep along the countryside. And, and so we get to the second point this morning. Usefulness in ministry flows from knowing God. We come here to a very well-known incident in the life of Moses, teaching our children from the earliest stage of life about the burning bush. Moses and the burning bush. In the second verse, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now that is a strange occurrence. It's a strange phenomena. You don't see a bush and it doesn't get burnt. God yeah, is exposing himself. He's revealing something of his nature, of his being to Moses in this particular encounter. Moses is getting to know God in a more specific, in a more 
personal way. This is what God is like. He, he moves from there, and, and we have the record of it, and we can examine it, and, and we can see for ourselves more of who God is. God is exposing something of his divine nature to Moses. By God, what is God doing here? Just consider that burning bush that is not consumed. By God overriding the laws of nature, by making a bush burn but not be consumed, there must have been something of the realization by Moses of the extraordinary and supernatural nature of God. This God is not ordinary. Well, since the bush is not being consumed, since the bush is not being reduced to ashes, I believe that Moses learns that God cannot be put in a box. I want to explore that a little bit for us here this morning. A bush burning reminded me of some studies I did many years ago. Scientists have defined what is called the laws of thermodynamics. And there is one particular law of thermodynamics that states that energy can neither be created nor destroyed, but only changed from one form to another. In other words, you can have a fire, but you need wood to burn. You can't have a fire if you don't have fuel. So scientists can do that. They can define natural laws. They can define the law of gravity, the law of aerodynamics, many, many laws in electricity and mechanics and, and in all sorts of worlds. But, but how do you completely, how do you adequately understand and define God who appears as a fire in a bush without the bush being burnt? What do you think? The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. And out of the midst of a bush, he looked and behold, the bush was burning. And it was not consumed. Well, let's think about that. Well, God created the earth. We know that. We told that at the beginning of Genesis. Not only did he create the earth, but he sustains it. He keeps it in motion. He keeps it going in, in the greater picture of the universe and the cosmos. But the point we are being uh, shown here about God is that in spite of creation, wonderful thing that God has done, in spite of sustaining, in other words, within the context of laws that he himself have put in, has put in place, he can at any time at will suspend natural laws that he put in place. Well, God does the impossible. So often, even today, we find that there are theologians who deny the miraculous. Their problem is they don't understand who God is. God can suspend and does when it is required. He can suspend these natural laws. He is a miracle worker. He can do and does do what nobody else can do. God is above natural law. God is not subject to natural laws. Now, here's the point. He's showing Moses, he's showing us that he, God, is powerfully sovereign over all things, including the laws of nature, as we would call them. It's leaving us to see that this God has a way of working 
that transcends our way of working. In the creation order, we operate, every one of us operate within the bounds of natural law. But God says, Moses, you need to learn a lesson. And we will see this in the unfolding of the plagues that follow immediately. Moses, you need to know that as my servant, I don't share your limitations. I don't share the boundaries that confine you and limit you to what you can do. Under me and with me, you can, when I consider it necessary, this is God speaking, you can accomplish my purposes and you can expect the supernatural. Man, Central Baptist Church, we need to get hold of that. It's, it's not just the normal and the natural, but when God is at work doing his purposes and he needs to do it, he acts above natural expectation and routine. God is, is, is God does not change, and so therefore, as, as we face ministry in 2021, and, and our task is that of the work of the gospel, don't place limitations on what you think God can and can't do, uh, because there are commentators and skeptics within the culture of our, day, of our day that says, well, God can't do it today because it's 2021. Nonsense. Nonsense. The gospel of our Lord Jesus remains the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And so we who operate today amongst millennials, this is the terminology, millennials or generation X's or, or, or liberals or, or uh, Marxists or communists or capitalists, doesn't matter what you want to call the different uh, 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 ideologies and, and, and belief systems. With the gospel in our hand, and God had worked through us as instruments, God will succeed in redeeming people from their sin. But I want to move on. Not only must we not put God in a box, but part of the meaning of the burning bush, which kept burning all by itself without being extinguished, tells us that God is completely self-sufficient. Again, Things creep in amongst believers and, and there is this thought that God is somehow restricted because of our inactivity. No, God is self-sufficient. And so unlike anything and everything else, God is uniquely not dependent on anyone or anything. Sorry to burst your bubble, but God actually doesn't need you. He chooses to use you. doesn't need me. Simply chooses to use me. He raises people up like Moses. Now, think about this concept of dependence. You and I are dependent all the time for all things. Take a kite. So when I was a little boy, we didn't buy kites that were ready-made. We had to make them. So we had to find a piece of bamboo and slice the bamboo and, and, and make it nice and, and, and slim and, and, and trim it to the right size. And, and so I can't even begin to think to fly a kite until I find bamboo. And then not only the bamboo, then what I needed to find was some thin cotton to make the frame. And then I remember having to go down, it was the bicycle shop who sold tissue paper. And, and I would buy tissue paper and, and then have to find glue to stick the, the tissue paper onto uh, the kite and its frame. And, and then to find some nylon to extend the kite into the sky. And even if the kite was finished and built, I couldn't fly it unless there was wind. 
Did you get the idea? We, we are totally, think about anything at all. You being here this morning, you needed to get transport to get you. you. You needed to eat food so that you could live. You needed air to breathe. You are completely dependent. God is uniquely not dependent. Let me read a comment from Alexander McLaren. I love this comment. The fire that burns and does not burn out, which has no tendency to destruction in its very energy and is not consumed by its own activity is surely a symbol of the one being whose being derives its law and its source from itself. Who only can say, in other words, he's the only one that can say this, I am that I am. And the law of his nature, the foundation of his being, the only condition for his existence, his, his existence being, as it were, enclosed within the limits of his own nature. Now that's a technical, let me put it more practically now. You and I, as we sit here today, have to say, I am that which I have become. Or, I am which I was born. Or, I am which circumstances have made me. He said, I am that I am. All other creatures are links. This is the staple from which they all hang. All other being is derived and therefore limited and changeful. This being is underived, absolute, self-dependent, unalterable forever. And the comment uh, a commentary continues from McLaren, just one more paragraph. He says, because we live, we die. In living, the process is going on, which death is the end. But God lives forevermore. A flame that does not burn out, therefore his resource, man, think about this. His resources are inexhaustible. His power is unwearied. He needs no rest for recuperation of wasted energy. His gifts diminish not the store which he has to bestow. He gives and is none the poorer. He works and is never weary. He operates unspent. He loves and he loves forever. And through the ages the fire burns on, unconsumed, undestroyed. Fuck, that's... That's the God that we serve, that we can know and, and we ought to know better. And, and, and I can only imagine if I was in Moses' uh, shoes or sandals, I would want to draw closer. I want to see more of what, what, who is this, this supernatural, uh, amazing being, this, this unique God. And so we read in verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. What a great sight. And the why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, God called to him and from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Now, in the light of what I've already said, can you understand something of the significance of God saying to Moses, be cautious. I'm present in this place. God was present in a special, unique way. And, and so the presence of God 
turns that which is ordinary into the extraordinary. He turns that which is common to the uncommon. And so the, the, the warning, the, the, the lesson to Moses, the lesson to us is, is Moses, you need to understand that, that, that I am God, that you're the creature, that there is something about me that, that when you approach me, you do so in reverence, you do so in caution, you do so in fear. And approach the Lord frivolently, frivolently. Which leads me to my next point that he discovers that God, and I use the word holy other. God is holy other. Now, I'm going to use the word holy now with an H, not with a W, but the primary meaning for the word holy with an H actually is that which is uh, meaning apartness or otherness, it's unlike us. So when we say that God is holy with an H, we call attention, and God is calling attention to the fact here to Moses, there is a profound difference. There's a distance between the creature and the creator. Now again, there's tremendous application. You know what, folks? God does not fit into, or God does not conform to our ideas and concepts of deity or the divine. That's idolatry. You see, God is not subject to our conclusions regarding what we think, who he is and what he can do. Again, there's kind of a bubble that needs to be burst there. God, no, God is different. God is different to us. God is different to the gods of people's imagination and, and the gods of people's projection of what they want him to be or they'd like him to be. And so this word holy with an H primarily refers to this, the fact that God is transcendent majesty. Apart from his revelation, we cannot know him. He's too great. He's too big. He's too mighty. He's too majestic. And so this we could use the words, his august superiority makes him worthy of the way we approach him in terms of honor and obedience and reverence and worship and adoration. Then, yes, we do get on to the secondary meaning where we understand holy with an H, speaking to the issue of God's pure and righteous actions, knowing that God always does what is right God does not do what is wrong. God always acts in, right, in a righteous manner because of his holy nature. But, but you, you get the message over here that God is, is, is holy with a W. He's different. We hold him up. We esteem him. We pray that he would consume our hearts. As I prayed earlier on, that our hearts would be inclined to submission, that our affections would be drawn to him, that we would be consumed, that we would... Gabby chose the song. That we would know him more. There's another aspect of God's nature that we can draw from this passage. A reminder to Moses that God is a promise keeper. I would imagine as Moses stood looking at the bush, he still remembers what's going on back in Egypt. And what is going on in Egypt is that the people are suffering, people are under a task, masters. And, and so looking at a fire, uh, maybe uh, put into his mind the fact that, but hang on a minute, they've been subjected to suffering, they're under the fire of affliction, 
But there's a messenger from God that they will not be consumed. Is that extending or stretching the passage? Now, whether that was intended or not, it nevertheless is the truth. The people of God, the Hebrews, were at that moment in a furnace of fire. Life was difficult. It was a furnace of affliction. But they would not be consumed. And this is from the passage. The furnace of affliction could not destroy the nation of Israel because God had bound himself to them by covenant, which he confirms in verse 6. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Do you get the message, Moses? I don't go back on my word. Well, Moses, having encountered God in these different ways, and there are probably more ways we could focus on, Moses' response is Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And in those moments, there's something that happens to Moses that changed him forever as a servant. And, and, and therein lies the lesson that, that I believe we can take from this passage in our usefulness as children of God. We too need to know the reality of who God is. This encounter, this experience, this, this, this realization, the eyes of faith, the ears of faith being opened to see the glory and the majesty and the greatness of God. And so from that point on, you know what happens? He moves on. As a servant of God, going beyond, beyond just the pursuit of a cause, he goes beyond that which is just some kind of good idea. Where Moses had previously, remember, taken things into his own hands, the cause of justice, I suppose he would have called it, he blew it. But now, having had an encounter with God, there's a subtle difference that happens. Whereas before, we could have described him as someone on his own mission. He becomes someone on God's mission. That's where we ought to be, on God's mission. Moses becomes the servant of God under the direction, under the strength of the God that he's come to know more fully. With that, I want to conclude, and it's, it's a longer than usual conclusion, but I do want to ask the question, to us about our servanthood. How do we serve the Lord? What characterizes our usefulness in kingdom ministry, in redemptive work? On the one side, it is possible that we are distracted as those who are on a mission of our own making, on our own mission. We like to champion legitimate causes, we could call them, uh, all sorts of causes, feeling strongly, thinking that these are good uh, ideals and, and good objectives, feeling strongly about a theological system, for example, or a particular worship style, or, or, or having this dream of a, of a mega church, or promoting a certain movement, or, or having ideals about racial integration, which is the big uh, topic in South Africa, and, and fighting abortion, or, or equity in wages, and leveling the economic playing fields. Now, every one of those may be and are legitimate causes, but, but is that what God calls us to 
be primarily involved in. You see, the aim of a private crusader is to see the cause served and to accomplish this through any means. On the other hand, if we're on God's mission and we're more of a personal servant of God, it's not so much about pursuing a cause first and foremost, but it's understanding that God has actually pursued us. God taking the initiative, us responding as as Moses did in awe of the sovereign, powerful, this God that he couldn't put in a box, this independent, this self-existent, this holy, promise-keeping God. And in knowing God, he follows his instructions. Challenge to us today. Is our faith, is my faith, is your faith and service rooted and grounded first and foremost in the fact that we want to please God? Where is God? I've often said this in discussion to fellow pastors where we discuss certain issues and the way things ought to happen in denominational work. Or uh, where, where, where does God fit into this equation? Surely he must be uppermost. He must permeate. I want you to go on, how do we do that? It's focusing on Jesus. It is focusing on the work and the person of Jesus. And I even want to stretch this analogy of the bush a little bit further uh, on, on, on pointing to Jesus. And, and I do so, and it's not my own. I, I did find this uh, by an author by the name of Henry Law. He says, uh, Look back at the burning bush from your particular vantage point. You can see the picture of our Lord Jesus and his redeeming work. Do you get it? Did you see it? Let me describe. As God stooped to reveal himself in that lowly desert shrub, so the Lord Jesus Christ stooped to take unto himself our humanity. He goes further says of Christ, he is God, and yet he stoops to be made a man. He is man, and yet he continues to be God forever. Withdraw the Godhead, and his blood cannot atone. Withdraw the manhood, and no blood remains. The union gives a savior. Look at the bush. It shows this very union. The wood denotes the poor and feeble product of the earth. But it holds God as its inmate. I think it's a picture of the incarnation of Jesus. As fire enveloped the bush, so Christ was enveloped by the sufferings in his life and in his death. As as the fire cannot destroy the bush, so Christ was not destroyed by his sufferings, but rose from the grave in triumph over them all. So, folk, my uh, final word this morning, we must know him more. But we only know him, the revelation of the word, in the face of our Lord Jesus. This Jesus who freely offers himself to sinful men and women. And the urging of this kind of passage as, as, as God draws Moses to himself through the word and through the passage and through Christ, he continues to draw men and women and young people to himself. 
May we as a church continue to hold Jesus central. As individuals always holding him and taking him as our savior. And then you don't have to give up and abandon yourself to the thought of experiencing the judgment of God where fire will consume. But as Savior, as we take him as Savior, live our lives knowing God as he truly is, serving him as he is worthy of, fulfilling your God-given purpose. Lord, I do pray for that. Paul, a chosen servant, Lord, that you had so clearly uh, raised up in that New Testament church. The amazing experience that he had on the road to Damascus. Uh, Another instance where he speaks of being caught up into heaven. Seeing things that he's unable to communicate And yet, Lord, when he writes to the Philippians, he speaks about longing to know you more. Give us that hunger and thirst for you as your Holy Spirit works, as we read your word, enabling us, we pray. And then to respond in appropriate ways, in the way that we are used for your intended purposes in gospel ministry, we ask. As a church as well. Help us to keep Jesus and his gospel at the center of all that we do. And we pray this because you are God and to you belong glory and honor. Amen. Amen.